I'm grateful to Pastor Ken for letting me have the opportunity to speak, but I'm also a little apprehensive because we've been used to one service for the last two months, and now you all are sitting here for a second service. It reminds me of something I read from uh, one of those outdoor comedians, those outdoor humorists. He, he was a big do-it-yourselfer, and he actually went so far as to try and do-it-yourself build a handgun. And his number one rule, I didn't know you could do this, but he said his number one rule for building a handgun was when you go and take it out to test shoot it for the first time, bring sunglasses. Bring sunglasses. His reasoning was you let, you go out to the range, bring the new gun that you've just built, and then you say, oh, you know what? I forgot my sunglasses. They're in the car. Hey, you want to fire off a few rounds for me? Just you know, make, sure, make sure it's all good. I feel a little bit like that's what pastor's doing with me. Hey, we're starting the second hour, and people are used to just one hour. Why don't you, Zach, why don't you just get up there and then put out a few words, see what happens, see if people fall asleep or run screaming. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Boy, I thought winter was almost over, didn't you? It's March, and we've got another four, six inches of snow on the ground, depending on where you are. My parents in Columbus said they were supposed to get as much as a foot overnight. I don't even know if they had church this morning. But if, if you're like me, if you did much driving at all during this winter, you probably had the experience I had a few weeks ago, headed to work. I thought I would avoid the stretch where I knew it hadn't been plowed, so I went through the side entrance to my office, and I got stuck. Stuck halfway in the intersection, halfway out. Now, well, it's not a very big intersection, but still, it was a moment of panic, as I, you've probably had that too, where, all right, I'll just, I'll just back it up, and it spins. <laughs> all right, I'll just push forward really fast, and it spins. Oh, great, what am I going to do? And people say, oh, carry kitty litter, or carry two-by-fours, you know, stuff to put down. I never carry kitty litter or two-by-four in my car. I don't, hopefully you don't either, unless you have, have a cat that you want to hit. Uh, nobody's that prepared. But, you know, being stuck on an icy road or somewhere where you're spinning your wheels, that's bad. What's really bad is when you don't know that you're stuck. I heard a former cop tell the story that he saw a guy who was obviously very intoxicated go off the road into the bank, into the ditch. And And the officer walked up to him And the guy was so drunk that he still thought he was driving. So the officer said, just to make him feel better, I went like this, pull over, pull over. (laughs) When you don't know you're stuck, that's, in some ways, if we're talking about our spiritual lives, and I'm up here, so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. When you're stuck in your spiritual life and you don't know it, when you're not going anywhere, That's the most dangerous of all. Because if you were going backwards at full speed, people would notice. Wow, that person is really, they've got some real problems. I need to step in and minister to them. I need to speak God's truth to them. I need to see what we can do to help them and encourage them and bring them back. And of course, if you're moving forward, everybody thinks you're fine. But it's when you're stuck, people pass you maybe and they say, well, they're probably okay. I'm sure they'll get going and just, just, you know, next week they'll be fine. And week after week after week goes by and you're still stuck. 
Pastor Ken said a few weeks ago, it's what spurred this lesson. He said, the unexamined life is not worth Jesus. The unexamined life is not worth Jesus. So let's do a little self-examination this morning. Let me ask you, would you describe your walk with God as ineffective, unproductive, spiritually nearsighted, forgetful? These are all terms that are found in our text this morning. And I encourage you to turn to 2 Peter 1, first chapter of the second epistle that the Apostle Peter wrote. He's going to give us some instructions on how to personally exercise godliness. And he's going to give that as the key to help pull us out of our quicksand, a chain that's going to pull us out if we're stuck spiritually, if our wheels are spinning. We need this chain, and we need what it's connected to, as we're going to see. So look, first of all, I'd like to go right to the middle of the passage, then we'll branch out from there. Practicing virtue isn't just the way to lead a respectable life. It's one of the primary ways of protecting you spiritually. And so we see that first point, if you're going to keep an an outline, basic points. Exercising godliness is a spiritual defense. Exercise, exercise, that's really hard to say because I don't exercise. Oh, there I got it. Exercising godliness is a spiritual defense. Look at verses 8 and 9 of 2 Peter 1. If you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But whoever does not have them is nearsighted and blind, forgetting that they have been cleansed from their past sins. So we're going to see that the way that these virtues, this chain of virtues that's given in verses 5 and 7, we'll get there in just a minute, but this protects us spiritually. It's a defense for us. God intended godliness and good works to defend us, to protect us. And the first way it does that is it protects us from spiritual stagnation in these verses 8 and 9. I described short, uh, nearsightedness, forgetful, unproductive, unfruitful, feeling like you're stuck in place, just spinning your wheels. Peter says these qualities that we're going to look at in just a minute, these are supposed to secure you. They are supposed to give a witness to your faith and encourage you and motivate you forward. And they do that in different ways. As we go through verses 8 through 11, following that list of virtues in 5 through 7, we're going to see that there's really two possibilities. If someone does not have those qualities and they're not abounding in their life, the two possibilities are first, that they're spiritually stagnant. That they haven't made progress in their Christian walk. They're blind, the text says, failing to see what we should see Although we've been cleansed and forgiven in Christ, we're still living with the values of the world. That's still important to us, more important than growing in grace. Talked about exercise. Treadmills seem to be very popular. You can have it in your home. Even at the gym, there's dozens and dozens of treadmills. Running in place may be good for your physical exercise, but it's not good for your spiritual exercise. These Christian virtues need to be abounding in our life as we progress in Christ-likeness. The beginning of verse 5 says, 
make every effort to add, to supplement, to, and then it gives the eight virtues. Make every effort. That's a word that is not found anywhere else in the New Testament. As best as we can tell, it's, it's a unique type of strenuous effort to your utmost. Make this a top priority. These virtues, these godly qualities, they're essential. You must have them to keep from being spiritually stagnant. It doesn't just happen automatically. It would be awfully nice if we just got a godliness IV stuck in our arm and God just pumped us full of what we needed for the week. Isn't that how a lot of people view church on Sunday? I'll just go and, I'll just go and get my fix and it'll carry me through. But the fact is we are supposed to make a strenuous effort for these qualities to be present and abounding in our life. So let's look at those. Peter used a literary form in verses 5 through 7. He builds these step by step, these links in a chain. And those verses say, For this very reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, and to goodness knowledge, and to knowledge self-control, and to self-control perseverance, and to perseverance godliness, and to godliness mutual affection, and to mutual affection love. There's the chain, the steps in the chain that we're going to look at this morning. But I want to tell you, this list is not unique. If you're familiar with your New Testament, you're probably already thinking of other places where a list of godly virtues is given. Passages like the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, 22-23. Romans 5, 3-5. James 1, 3-4, Colossians 3, 12-14. This is not unique for the writers of Scripture to say, these are the things that you need to progress in godliness. But the fact is, none of those lists is equal. The amount varies. The order varies. Some lists neglect some of those virtues and add others in. Each of the writers had a unique purpose. And they wanted to emphasize certain things. But the point is that these are not supposed to be used as a checklist. I'm not giving you the eight virtues of verses 5 through 7. So you can say, all right, I'm doing well there, doing well there, doing well there. Need to work a little bit better on that. Doing well, doing well. I'm not doing very well there. Okay, I know what I need to work on this week. That's not the point. Because these virtue lists vary. We're supposed to start thinking about the type of values that will point us to Christ-likeness, as we'll see. Briefly, let me run over these as the starting points in our pursuit of godliness. Saving faith is first. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And without faith, all our works are as filthy rags. So obviously the first point, and Peter makes a, 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 terrific, uh, a terrific starting point for this chain. Unless we're trusting in Christ, all our efforts are in vain. Then he goes on to a goodness or a virtue. It's really trying to master the moral will of God, to find out what his will is, what his values are, and pursue those. Third is knowledge of God and his will. That's uh, repeated over and over again in this passage. We'll spend a little more time there. The fourth is self-discipline. I read that it's the opposite of those type of excesses that the pagan culture celebrated in their day and in ours too a culture that celebrates letting go, 
let it go. Let it go if you've seen Frozen. Just let it go and do what you want to do. That's the, that's the values of the culture. They don't value self-control. Perseverance, this isn't just, if you have a different version, it may say something like patience, but it's not just being patient with others. It's actually more the idea of steadfastly setting your eyes. I'm going to follow this through. I'm going to cling to Christ as he's clinging to me. I'm going to persevere to the end and not lose this faith. The sixth virtue is godliness. Uh, One commentator said it's a very practical awareness of God in every aspect. So we live quorum Deo, I think as Pastor Ken has said, before the face of God. No matter what we're doing, God is there and God cares what we're doing and why we're doing it. And then the last two are, it may seem to overlap, the brotherly, warm affection and love. The first one is, I think, especially supposed to be for the warmth that we have for other Christians in the body of Christ. That warm affection that makes you go up to somebody that's been missing for six weeks and say, I missed you. What's going on? Is everything okay? Maybe you give them a call or an email before that time. The person that's hurting, that, is, that leaves the worship service with tears in their eyes, you don't just let them go out to their car and leave. You stop them. You ask them how you can pray for them. It's not about pestering people or getting all up in their business. It's about showing warmth of brotherly affection for those that have been called together like us in this local assembly. And then love, the word that you may be familiar with, agape. It's the, uh, the belt that binds all the other virtues together, according to Colossians 3.14. That is what, if we do not have love, all the other virtues are impossible. Just like if we don't have faith. It's no mistake that Peter puts faith and love as the capstones to these virtues. So there you have it. There are your eight virtues. I could leave now, right? You know what you need to work on. You're already thinking in your mind about the ones that you're weaker on in than others. But I don't want you to think that if I just have this chain, if I can just hold on to this chain, build the links in this chain, that will work. That's enough. Because it's not. I have a small chain here. Really should have gone to Harbor Freight and got a bigger one just for this. But I asked the kids in kids' worship what a chain can do. And they came up with some pretty good answers. Yes, it can restrain, but it can connect things. It can help pull things out. And so I asked them. I said, okay. I put the chain on the ground in front of them. And I said, all right, what's this chain going to do? Nothing. Why? You, you said it could do all these great things. Well, you have to be holding on to it. Okay? Now what? A chain has to be connected at both ends. A chain has to be connected at both ends. And I said one of the possibilities, if you don't have the chain in your life, it's not that the chain is not important, but if you don't have the chain in your life, you may just be spiritually stagnant. Your chain may be just lying there because you're not progressing in your faith. It doesn't matter how good that chain looks, though, unless it's connected to the cross, unless, as the first virtue is faith, unless it is flowing out of your salvation, then the chain is not going to do anything for you. And that's 
Unfortunately, and sadly, the second possibility, look at verses 10 through 11. Not just maybe that we're, not, that we're stagnant and not moving forward, but he says, Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. The point is, by progressing in these virtues, you will confirm the, your calling and election. If you do these things, you will never stumble and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What's Peter talking about there? Well, the fact is, if you are lacking those virtues, if they're not present and abounding in your life, yes, you could just be nearsighted. You could just be forgetful or stagnant. But you could never have really tasted the fruit of repentance and faith in the first place. Why is Peter thinking that? Well, Peter was facing a problem with the people that he wrote to. They were being afflicted, as is so often the case in our New Testament books, by false teachers. And if you look at the first verse of chapter 2, he talks about them. But there were also false prophets among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. The sovereign Lord who bought them. It sounds like these people are Christians, but they're called false teachers. Look at verse 20 of the same chapter. In verse 19, these people promised them freedom while they themselves are slaves of depravity. That doesn't sound like a Christian. Because Christians are freed. We are not slaves to sin any longer. For people are slaves to whatever has mastered them. If they have escaped the corruption of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and are again entangled in it and are overcome, they're worse off at the end than they were at the beginning. Peter's using a technical form here to say, look, if it were even possible that these false teachers were really Christians, it'd be even worse for them. But the fact is, they've experienced Christianity. They've joined the church. They've talked the talk. They've even walked the walk for a while. But if you read the entirety of 2 Peter 2, which is a lot like Jude, you'll see descriptions that in no way could be describing a true believer. So put yourself in this church's place. The Apostle Paul is writing to them, and he's saying, look, some of you are not progressing in godliness. Now, it may be that you're just nearsighted and forgetful and stagnant. You need to look to the Savior. You need to look to the cross, the election and calling that you have. You can confirm that by continuing in good works, by persevering. But those of you that don't persevere, you're just going to keep on fading away. You're going to keep on fading because that faith is not there in you. You're going to listen to these false teachers. I'm telling you not to, but you're going to listen to them. You're going to heed what they have to say. Their lifestyle, their erroneous doctrine is going to look attractive to you because you don't have a calling in your heart that's different. You are not elect. It's sad to have to say words like this, but there are going to be times when in... In your relationships, someone who claimed the name of Jesus falls away really hard 
And you're going to have to come to, the, come to an understanding in your mind, this person may not be a Christian after all. I thought they were. I thought I saw fruit. I sat, they, they sat one row across from me in church for 20 years. They may fall away just because they picked up a horrific doctrine. A man in my dad's church years ago, who'd been, a, uh, been there for 30 years, if I remember correctly, started talking to people, and they realized he didn't believe Jesus was the Son of God. He'd been in the church 30 years and was obviously a wolf hiding among the sheep, trying to teach people that you don't really have to believe Jesus is God. It may be that obvious, or it may be someone that just slips away, that loses interest. The virtues aren't there. The fruit of the Spirit in general is not there. And they slip away because they were never truly Christ's to begin with. If those basic godly virtues of verses 5 through 7 are lacking, it calls into question whether we are even going to enter into heaven in the first place. It says you'll never stumble stumble, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Sobering words, the negative and the positive. The stumbling is a reference to falling away like these false teachers had. Exercising virtue serves to confirm the reality of our salvation. Faith without works is dead. And these verses give those benefits of a righteous life. We will continue in the faith. These stakes are so high, friends. It's not just about looking good to other people. Virtue, practicing godliness, if it's missing from our lives, it's a danger sign that we won't even enter the kingdom. And it's not just about the subjective feeling of assurance that you feel oh, yes, I know I'm part of Christ. I know I belong to him. I know I'm going to be in heaven. That's terrific. That's a gift from God as you obey. But this passage is actually talking about the objective witness that your works give to your faith. It's saying your works don't come before your faith. Pastor Matt said a few weeks ago, good works are, are months really now, he said good works are the fruit of, not the root of our salvation. And we see that in a passage like Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Good works cannot stand by themselves. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. That chain needs to be present and abounding in our spiritual life, but it needs to be connected. It tethers us to grace. And that's what I want you to see in the first couple verses. Really, all throughout the chapter, verse 1 says we've received a faith. Verse 3, we're called Verse 4, we've escaped the corruption. 9, we're cleansed. 10, our calling and election. Confirm that which has already happened in you. And not to mention the emphasis on truly knowing Christ. Verses 2, 3, 5, and 8. 
In short, friends, I just quote the end of verse 4. Or, sorry, the uh, beginning of verse 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life. Everything we need through God's grace. God, through Christ, as we know Christ, as we've been born again and received a new life, we're able to pursue those godly qualities. Not to show off, not to pump ourselves up, not to earn favor before God, but in response to the work that he's done in our lives. Of course, these great and precious promises that he talks about, look at that in verse 3. A godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. The excellence of Christ radiates. It attracts us like a magnet. Through these, through these great qualities of Christ, through the character of our Lord, he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them you may participate in the divine nature having escaped the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. Friends, I want that to be my goal. I want that to be your goal. We can participate in the divine nature by being like Jesus, by following after his character. It is a terrific privilege to be born again and to be freed to do good works. That chain, the world would say, that chain binds you. That chain trips you up. It keeps you from fun. All the things that we could do in this life, and you've got those, you've got your integrity, you've got your values, you've got your virtues, and we say, no, the chain is because I have been freed. That chain of virtues I gladly take, I gladly pursue, because Christ has saved me, and I'm trusting him not in my works, but I'm gladly looking to him. That for the ver- this very reason, at the beginning of verse 5, it links to verse 3. For this reason, this is why you need to pursue these, this chain of virtues, is because his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We can't ever fall prey to the lie that says, okay, God's the one who saved me, but now it's up to me to pursue righteousness. I have, to, I have to grow and become a better person. One commentator rightly said, believers will be morally transformed, but the foundation for their transformation is God's grace. The Lord has promised to bring about our Christ-likeness. He said it's going to happen if you're really one of mine, if you've been called If you know Christ, I'm going to change you. So we can rely on God's plan even as we make that strenuous effort, as we continue and progress in those qualities. But it's tough, isn't it? Where's the line between my efforts? Am I doing this in my own strength? And am I I pursuing godliness in the Lord's strength? I'm sure it's hard for you because it's hard for me. I'm one of those people that checks my motives and and overthinks things at times. Am I really doing that because I want to please God? Or am I doing it just because it's the most convenient choice? It's because what I grew up with. It's because that's what I learned. That's what's kind of the, the norm in my office place. 
Where's that line? And I just have a simple test for whether our efforts are grace-centered or flesh-centered. Those verses earlier said in in verse 4, you've escaped the corruption of the world caused by evil desires. That's a mark of your salvation. That should motivate you and impel you forward. Do we avoid then that corruption, that decay in the world because we're afraid it will taint us? Or do we avoid it because we've already been delivered and we want to pursue the righteous character of Jesus? In other words, are you in your pursuit of righteousness motivated more by the fear of your failure or by the joy of how Christ has already succeeded? Let me say that again. In your pursuit of righteousness, are you motivated more by the fear of your failure or by joy in how Christ has already succeeded. And you can pursue that because he has given you the ability to pursue godliness now, to live a life that is pleasing to him. You have everything you need in Christ. If you find yourself saying, boy, I I always try to do what's right, but it's because I'm afraid of what other people think. It's because I've set a high bar for myself my whole life and I I can't slack off now well, you know, it's just how I grew up. I'm, I'm a disciplined person. I like to have a plan. And we need to be careful that that chain, as beautiful, as strong as it may be, is not just lying on the floor, that it is tethered to our redemption in Christ. The pursuit of godliness is essential in shaping us into Christ's image and serving as our spiritual defense. We're empowered in this exercise by the work that God has already begun in us and will continue to do. But it's all well and good to set out on a trip with the engine tuned with a full tank of gas. You need to have a direction. I don't know if anybody still uses GPS or if they all just use their phone, but you need to have your course set. And that is what God's Word does for us. God's work helps us in that exercise of godliness, and God's word enables us to define godliness. Very important here. I told the kids in the last hour, you look at those virtues, faith, self-control, perseverance, love, and the rest, and the world is going to define those for you if you will let them. They're happy to define faith. They'll tell you, Oh, it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. As long as you're holding on to something. I remember one of the places Lena would work, one of the girls would say, I've just had a bad day. I just need to go home and light a candle. That was her spiritual exercise in godliness. She would light a candle and maybe meditate for a minute or two and and it would all be better. The world will define faith for you. The world will define perseverance well, you know, you just need to, you need to pick something and stick to it. And if it doesn't work, well, you know, you can always fine-tune it or, or, or you can change your course. You don't need to stick with Christianity the rest of your life. I mean, it could be just a phase, right? They'll define self-control for you. They'll say, well, you know, as long as you don't hurt anyone physically when you're mad, it's okay to be angry. It's okay to blow off steam. It's okay to, you know, use those uh, abusive words on your family. You know, that... Just make it up to them later, and it'll be fine. 
the world will and does all the time redefine love, don't they? They take aspects of love, which is a multifaceted thing that God has given us, and they take one or two aspects of it, and they distort it. And they say, this is love. No, this is love. And they miss the portrait of self-sacrificing love that God gives us in his word. Friends, I do want you to pursue that chain. I want to pursue those chain of virtues. But it has to be done the way God defines those virtues, or our links are going to be defective. Look at the end of the chapter. 2 Peter 1, verse 19, he says, We also have the prophetic message as something completely reliable. And you will do well to pay attention to it as a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. It's not just the creativity of man. But prophets, through though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. If we read verses 12 through 15, you would see Peter saying, I want you to remember this. You need to remember this. I'm telling you this even though you already know it. These are important truths. And he captured them for all history in his epistle. And he's saying, we saw Jesus transfigured in the verses right before that. We saw Jesus in his glory. And you have an equally effective and authoritative testimony in this word. In the word of God in your hands, it is authoritative, it is powerful, it defines what righteousness is. The Spirit was the flawless superintendent of God's word, making sure that everything we need to know is in the Bible. That's an encouraging thought. So sections like verses 5 through 7 or Colossians 3 or Galatians 5, they're instructive for us because they show us the kind of values that God wants to be abounding and growing in our lives. It's not supposed to be a checklist, as I said, because all the, all the lists are different. It's supposed to tell us what God wants to see in us, what he expects of us as children of the heavenly king. True godliness flows out of the new nature that we have in Christ, and it's guided by the Spirit to the glory of God. It starts on the inside and and works its way out. So if you're trying to order your life to build your chain based on the advice of Dr. Phil, or on the counsel of friends and family members, or what you've always grown up with, your chain is going to be defective because it is not defined, it is not tethered to Christ and to the Word of God that is perfect and unchanging. Let Scripture define what is virtue and what is vice and make that your direction, make that your course. The knowledge of God's Word shows us and defines righteousness for us, but also God's word is where we read about the magnificent, glorious character of Christ. 
that chain has as one tether our salvation. We're enabled, we're empowered to even pursue righteousness because God saved us. And where is the direction? Where does it go? Because we read in God's word about Christ and we imitate him and we make him our model. All those years later, Peter still hadn't forgotten the majesty of Christ when he saw him on the mountain. It was still clear in his mind that's supposed to fill us with hope and with joy. When we sing a song, you are the glorious Christ, the greatest of all delights, I hope that resonates in your heart because nothing else is going to tether your chain of virtues if you are not pointed to Christ, pursuing him with that strenuous vigor in your lives. Verse 3, the Lord called us by his magnificent character. We're supposed to see him in his glory and imitate him in this new walk that we have. We're not on our own, friends. We're not supposed to smith a chain on our own and hope that it holds up through the, the, the trials and tribulations of life. The chain of virtues is vital, but it is tethered to the work of Christ on the cross and to the person of Christ as we read in Scripture. Every benefit we have as Christians comes from knowing Christ for the first time as our Savior and then ever more as the Lord that we pursue. But that knowledge can be, in the words of verse 8, ineffective and unproductive if we neglect to pursue those godly virtues that lead to a Christ-like character. Do you see how it all connects? God, through Christ, saves you and enables you to value what he values, to pursue the virtues that will make you look like Jesus. He's given us everything we need for that godly life. Yes, we must pursue godliness, but it needs to be tethered. It needs to be connected. It doesn't happen in a vacuum. God has given us both ends of that foundation for our chain. The basis for our efforts is Christ's effort on the cross. The aim of our efforts is to look like our Savior. If you're feeling distant from Christ today, if you're stuck, if you're spinning your wheels, I urge that you would look to the cross. Look to the word of God, to the truth there. Make your calling and election sure by the godliness you pursue. Don't neglect those things, friends. It's easy for us to fall into one of two extremes. I think almost every personality on earth tends to one of these two. We tend to performance, law-centered, I need to keep these laws. I need to keep these rules. I have to follow these steps. Or we tend towards lawlessness, where we veer off, it doesn't matter, God's in control, I'm just going to do whatever I want, I don't need to follow these truths, I don't need to pursue Christ-likeness, because it's all, it'll all work out in the end. I know which one of those I am. You probably know which one of those you are as well. And the best that I can give you is to assure you that Jesus cares. He cares about your life. 
about the godly qualities that are supposed to be abounding in your heart. He will help you. He's given you everything you need for that. Are you looking to him? Or are you looking elsewhere to tether your chain of virtues? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much, first of all, for your grace in leading us to this property in providing everything that was needed, Lord, to be able to be here today in a new virtually finished auditorium. We praise you for your grace. We acknowledge your hand through every step of that. But Lord, how sad would it be if we acknowledged your work in a physical building and we neglected the work that you are doing in our hearts and we neglected to pursue those godly qualities. Or Lord, if we tried to pursue them in our own strength, protect us, Father, from stagnation. Protect us from trying to do these things apart from Christ. May our chain of virtues be strong. May it always be tethered to the work that you have done and your glorious, perfect character. Thank you for this day. We pray in your precious name. Amen.